Well, we're going to finish the book of Ruth today. And yeah, yeah, I'm positive. We're finished today, whether we finish or not. So uh, other things on the schedule. But uh, hey, four chapters. It only took us what, 12 months. I don't know. Is that more than that? So that's pretty good. Uh, a chapter every three months. But I have, you know, God put this study on my lap. I wasn't really looking for this study. I'm a man. I don't go looking for the book of Ruth, you know, for my quiet time. I'm not sitting there eating my bacon and my eggs and having my coffee and think, oh, I think I'll read it in the book of Ruth. Uh, uh, but it came my way. But there's a lot for men in this book, uh, as well as women, for anyone that belongs to the Lord. But this book has really uh, impacted and influenced and spoken to me uh, in ways that I haven't experienced in quite a long time. So I would really encourage you uh, to go back over the notes uh, that you've taken and to maybe read back over the book this week. It's only four chapters, but wow, so much going on in this book uh, about uh, God in everyday life, uh, God in the ordinary, God in the perplexing, God in the troubling events of life. Uh, no miracles, no um, Red Sea parting, no burning bushes, no uh, dead being raised, you know, no feeding of 5,000 people, uh, but no less uh, the presence of God very clearly uh, in the lives of these people. And you remember, uh, Paul told the believers in Corinth when he was talking about the Old Testament, he said, these things in the Old Testament have been written for you. Uh, as an example, uh, so that you might be able to learn. So uh, these are real people who lived real lives, uh, and God chose in his uh, divine sovereignty to use them as an example uh, to follow. Uh, and last week, I believe the Lord really hit a nerve as we were um, looking at being people of excellence. So I just put some of the repeat. You, have, <laughs> you guys are looking at that outline. That's why you're saying, really, we're going to finish this today. It's two pages, both sides. Uh, well, it's the grand finale. Uh, I wanted balloons to fall with confetti uh, from the ceiling, everything. But uh, I didn't get around to getting that all rigged up. But uh, in your minds, let balloons and confetti fall from the ceiling because uh, this is the grand finale. Uh, but I wanted to put just some review notes for you uh, to have to take home with you, uh, especially uh, in learning and staying committed to being people of God, people of excellence. Uh, but, you know, uh, the key word in the book of Ruth would be the word redemption, uh, because we know that Boaz is, try, is going to redeem the family name uh, for Naomi uh, by marrying Ruth. And he was in love with her. But there was a thing in the law uh, that said that he was obligated to um, bring some children into the world because Naomi's husband died. Uh, and as the next closest relative uh, he could take care of that responsibility. Uh, and Boaz is a type of Christ. He is to remind us of the person in the work of Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. Uh, remember the study of Christ. Remember the doctrinal word for that? Christology. Uh, and that every book of the Bible has Christology. It's an interesting thing to do when you're reading through different books of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, to ask yourself, where is Jesus in this? Uh, because the intent of the Holy Spirit 
with the writers of Scripture was to put Jesus Christ on center stage, uh, even in the Old Testament. So we see Jesus as Redeemer uh, in the book of Ruth. Uh, you know, I was sitting at the light uh, at the intersection of Carmenita and Alondra uh, yesterday and uh, on one of my three trips to the airport. Things got kind of messed up with my kids leaving uh, yesterday. But anyway, uh, and through the light while I'm sitting there comes this uh Please forgive me for my uh, racial and political incorrectness. Please, please be patient with me uh, in case I use some wrong words or whatever. But I'll try to do this. So uh, remember, I'm white, very white. Uh, Okay, rural. I'm rural, small town white. I'm not just white. Okay, so just bear with me. So anyway, because I see things, I think that is so cool. So this wedding processional comes through the light. But it was clearly a young uh, Latino couple, uh, and they were in this processional of about 12 old, souped-up, restored cars, uh, a lot of 57 Chevys, I think. And then they were all decorated with flowers, you know, and other things. And it was so cool. But my imagination wasn't captured by the bride and groom. I was more interested in the cars, believe it or not. Uh, I'm not really a car person, but I couldn't help it. I thought, wow, those look amazing. In fact, the person behind me started honking because it was my turn and I was still sitting there. But it made me think that the story of redemption is like that processional, uh, that those cars probably didn't come in that condition. Those cars were probably restored. Some of those cars had probably been in storage. Some of them may have been abandoned, uh, rusty, run down, you know, but then they find someone who's an expert who fixes and restores those cars. Uh, But that's not enough. They then put them in a processional and then parade them uh, as trophies of, look what the expert has done in this restoration project. And, you know, redemption is like that. Uh, The scriptures tell us, uh, the the book of Ephesians tells us uh, that for eternity, we as the church age saints will be like a processional or parade. We will be like trophies of Christ's redemptive work. Uh, in order that the one who did the restoring, the one who did the redeeming, should receive all the glory. Uh, so, but that's how my mind works. I saw those cars and I thought automatically, that reminds me of Jesus. That, that tricked out 57 Chevy reminds me of Jesus. Uh, so, I don't know. You know how that works. So, so we're in Ruth chapter 4. We're going to finish this up. I just would like to point out a few things uh, as we move through this. On the second page of your outline, I only have a few slides today. This is more of perhaps a devotional approach as we finish our study in the book of Ruth. Uh, But looking at, are you kidding me? Did I do the wrong thing? Maybe I didn't. Just let me double check myself. Oh, that's right. I'm correct. Plus, I'm having, I think Satan's up to no good because I'm having problems with my uh, microphone and stuff today. So. We want to make sure, as we've been saying from the beginning, who is the main character in the book of Ruth? It's not Ruth. It's not Naomi. It's not Boaz. It's not Obed or David or Elimelech. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ. It's the Lord God who wants to be on center stage in the book of Ruth. And what are a couple things that we have learned? These are just sort of reminders as we move through here, as we stand in awe of what God has taught us through this series. That God's specialty is what? 
in bringing good results out of what appear to be bad circumstances. Doesn't that describe the life of Ruth and Naomi, uh, the hardships that they had faced? And yet God was using those hardships to accomplish his will. And we must always remember, we can match certain New Testament scriptures with the story of Ruth, such as Romans 8, 28 and 29. And, and a lot of you know that passage, right? And you can say it, part of it with me at least. And we know that God works all things together for good for those who love God and have been called according to his Purpose. Thanks. Oh, brain dead. Wow. Struggling today. Who've been called according to his purpose. And then it goes on in verse 29 to say that we should be conformed to the image of his son. So even our hardships, God uses to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And we've also been seeing this, haven't we? That God is always at work. Jesus said that in John chapter five. He said, my father is always working. I, too, am working. Do you realize that that is a divine attribute of God, that he is active, that he is active? That's one of the major points of the creation account in the early chapters of Genesis, that God is active. That's a divine attribute. And some of God's attributes we, too, reflect because we are his creation. And some of his attributes we don't. But this attribute of being active is one that we do. We are called to be active To reflect the fact that our God is active. In fact, Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So even when it may not feel like it to me, I by faith know that God is at work in my life. He's trying to accomplish something, mainly, ultimately, to conform me into the image of Christ. When we get up every morning, we should remind ourselves of that. We should really just stop and say out loud, Dear Heavenly Father, I know that today you're going to be about the business of trying to conform my life into a reflection of Jesus Christ. So whatever happens to me today, no matter how extraordinary or however ordinary, which is the lesson of the book of Ruth, no matter how mundane it may seem, I know, Heavenly Father, that you are about the business of conforming me into the image of Christ today. And I think we should remind ourselves of that every day. We may not feel like God is at work because perhaps we think we should have some sensational occurrence as proof that God is working. But the scriptures are clear that he never stops working. He is active uh, on our behalf, but also through us and in the world. Here are three lessons, remember, uh, that we have covered in the book of Ruth. And if I'm not mistaken, this will be your last slide for today, but you're not going to be dismissed. Uh, We have some other things to do. But these are three of the lessons uh, that we took from the book of Ruth that we want to remember. We want to see God in the ordinary. We want to learn to trust God in the perplexing. And we want to learn to magnify God in all. The events of life, because we saw Ruth and Boaz and eventually Naomi doing that. Ruth trusting God when she had a lot of perplexing, unanswered questions. We see God working in his providence behind the scenes at all times in their lives. And then we see Ruth and Boaz, even the people of the village here at the end of our story in chapter four, 
wanting God to receive all the glory, all the attention in everything that happened. They wanted to make sure that we all grasped that. Look at the quote from one of the study books of Ruth. Many of us have a dwarfed view of God. We believe in a miniature domesticated God. What we need is a big view of God. And that's what the book of Ruth is trying to get us to see. That we need a big view of God in our lives. That he is able, he is willing to work if we cooperate with him. So let's look, if you turn to the third page of your outline, God, especially, I know you're in awe that we did two pages of notes already. You can't believe it. Um, someone needs to alert the press. Uh, God's specialty, bringing good out of bad. That's what we'll see as we close out this chapter. God bringing good out of bad for a family and God bringing good out of bad for a nation. And then perhaps a fairy tale ending to our story, though it's not really a fairy tale at all, is it? I just would like to go over a few notes that I've taken uh, as we reflect, starting in verse 13 of chapter 4. Verse 13 says, So Boaz took Ruth, that's a euphemism for marriage. Boaz married Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. That's a euphemism for sexual relations. And the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. A couple of thoughts here to focus our minds on what God is doing here. Notice that the Hebrew says here in the text that God gave her conception. God gave her conception. The writer is giving God the sovereign glory for opening her womb to conceive. And by the way. Every pregnancy of every woman who has ever lived in the history of earth has been a sovereign gift from God. He is the one, Psalm 139 tells us, he is the one who fashions children in the womb. That he knows them by name even before they come into being, the scriptures say. Another thing we want to remember here is very interesting. We've learned from our study that we think Ruth was married to Naomi's son, Malon, probably for 10 years before he died. And how many children did Ruth and her first husband have? None. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it ironic? Remember, we've talked about in the book of Ruth. Another thing we see is that God often works in unexpected counterintuitive ways. Just it seems that God wants it to be clear that this is all about him because Ruth had been barren for 10 years, had no children. And then all of a sudden, God gave her conception. And doesn't that remind us of some other famous Old Testament women? Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. The scriptures are all clear that these women, their wombs were under the sovereign control of God. Let me encourage you also by this. If you are here today, how many of you here today are alive and breathing? Let's see a show of hands. Okay. I'm glad to see all but a handful are alive and breathing. You are here today alive and breathing because God has so willed that you be here. You came into the picture. You came into the history of this planet because that was God's intention. That was his plan. That was his will. That's why you're here. And you have a choice, just like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, to be a part of God's redemptive plans and purposes for the history of this planet. Isn't that 
Fascinating, isn't that awesome? God in his wisdom has chosen people, his creatures to accomplish his work. But in our sinfulness, in our worldliness, we get sidetracked by all the things of this life. And we tend to forget why we were even created in the first place. To bring him glory in all things. Look again at verse 13. It says what? And the Lord gave her conception and she gave birth to a son. Now, we'll see in a moment. That's a very important statement. And one of the things this is pointing out is so relevant to us today. Can you believe that the book of Ruth, written thousands and thousands of years ago, has pertinence to our world even today? And we're not going to dwell on it, but who chose the gender of this child? God. It says God gave her a son. This text is very clear, and for reasons that will become apparent in a moment, the text is clear that God assigned the gender of this child. Because this son will be connected to the plan and the purpose and the redemption of God in the nation of Israel through the messianic line, because from this son will come the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Interesting thought. And when the original audience was reading this story, this account, they would have been very sensitive and very alerted that God was definitely up to something here. Because here's this foreign woman from one of our enemy countries. She's a widow. She's destitute and poor. She's on welfare. She's a Moabite. And now she's Becomes the wife of Boaz. And not only that, she's been barren for 10 plus years. All of a sudden, she has not just a child, but in the Hebrew culture, a son. So people are reading this account and they know, wow, God is on the move. He's doing something here in the lives of these people. Now, in verse 13 as well, it says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her. Do you know what that's talking about when we look at the principle? We see what the word state, but there's a principle here that's talking about their obedience. Remember, Boaz was rescuing or redeeming the family name because uh, Naomi's family line was going to die out. So out of obedience to the law and out of love for the Lord and love for Ruth, Boaz marries her. And now, out of obedience to the Lord, he's going to carry on the family name on behalf of Naomi's family. Ruth, in chapter 2, verse 10, is called a foreigner. In chapter 2, verse 13, she's called the lowest of slaves. In chapter 3, verse 9, she's called a maidservant. But now, in chapter 4, in verse 13 and on, she's called what? She's called a wife and she's called a mother. And she's blessed. You know what? You no longer see her in chapter four being called by the village women, Ruth the Moabitess. They call her your daughter-in-law. They call her Boaz's wife. But notice what we want to catch here is the connection between the obedience to God of Boaz and Ruth and their usefulness to God. There's a direct connection Between being obedient to God's word and being used by God to accomplish his plans and purpose. You know, we read this morning in Galatians 5 that we should, and I like how it reads, 
Follow after the Spirit, it says. Walk by the Spirit and let those who walk by the Spirit or being led by the Spirit also follow after the Spirit. How do you follow after the Spirit? Following after the Spirit merely means obeying what the Scriptures say. Obeying God's commands. The more I obey the Scriptures, the more I obey and submit to the commands of God, the more useful vessel I can be to the Lord. You know, we have people who say, I want to be used of God. I want to be used. I want to be used. And so we want to start with, well, how is your obedience to the truth that you already know? Boaz and Ruth were being used in mighty ways in the messianic line of Christ because they were very obedient, God-loving, God-pleasing people. The account tells us they were people of excellence. Look at verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name, meaning the child's name, become famous in Israel. Notice here who they want to receive the greatest attention. They want the Lord God to receive the greatest attention because he's the main character in this whole event. They want God to be magnified even in an ordinary event of life such as a pregnancy, though this one is probably a little bit extraordinary, knowing Ruth's past and her physical condition. You know, 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us what? Whether we eat or drink and all that we do, do all to the, the glory of God. We ask ourselves, is that my motivation? Is that my desire? Because as a Christian, that must be my desire. Not just in the extraordinary, but even in the mundane and the ordinary. I do it for the glory of God. Proverbs 25, verse 2, a very interesting word or verse about the glory of God. You might want to jot it down, but listen to it carefully. Proverbs 25, verse 2. Uh, and I just scribbled a some, few little notes about that verse. It says, it is the glory of God to conceal or hide a thing. But the honor of kings is to search out a matter. It's the glory of God to conceal or hide a thing, but it's the honor of kings to search out a matter. What is he talking about? One writer says this. God is allowed to conceal his profound counsels and decrees by which he governs all things. Romans 11.33 puts it this way. Oh, the depth and the breadth of the wisdom and the riches of the knowledge of God says he reveals enough of his blessed nature and his counsel for us to have faith and to rest upon it. Not just to satisfy the curiosity of our self-conceit. Meaning there's a lot of God's will that he doesn't reveal to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us what the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children. In other words, Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, they didn't have all the details, did they? They didn't have all the puzzle pieces. They only had what God wanted them to have. They only knew about their situation in their life, what God wanted them to know. And they knew God's word as far as he had revealed it to them. But they were willing by faith to obey the truth that they were given, even though they didn't have all the answers for what they were struggling through. One person says this. Talking about the glory of God is to conceal a thing. He says, hence appears then the audacity of those who permit God to do nothing except only what falls under their comprehension and their petty minds. 
In other words, if I don't have all the information and all the facts, then I'm not going to believe or trust in some God. Another writer said, this is what we should do as his children. We should rather stand on the shore and silently admire rather than enter into the deep waters. I thought that was really good. We should rather stand on the shore and admire than try to attempt to enter into the deep waters. So Naomi and Ruth, particularly in our story, have faced some amazing, difficult struggles. And Ruth especially displayed an excellent trust in God in the face of tremendous adversity, didn't she? She didn't accuse God of not giving her enough information, of not giving her enough details of, Lord, what are you doing to me? Why is this happening? Uh, Hello, does anyone up there really know what's going on down here? She, She didn't have that kind of attitude. She knew there were certain things in the divine Godhead that were not to be revealed. But she was content to trust the Lord with what he had given her. And look at verse 15 now. And they say to Naomi, may God also or may your son grandson also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter in law who loves you. Important word loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to your grandson. Of course, that word love we've seen many times. The word hesed, God's sacrificial covenant, loyal love to the nation of Israel. And the people say, look how your daughter-in-law has been so faithful and committed and loyal and sacrificial toward you. In fact, many commentators will say that more than any other person in the entire Old Testament, Ruth embodies that fundamental principle that was in the nation of Israel's ethic, which was what? Number one, love the Lord your God was rule number one with all your heart. And then the second greatest command in the nation of Israel was what? Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. You see that in Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And once again, the counterintuitive way that God works in this story comes out in Leviticus 19.34, where Moses commands the people of Israel Love the stranger or foreigner as much as you love yourself. And isn't it ironic that the stranger from Moab comes in and shows the nation of Israel, this is how we do it. Isn't that interesting? The command to the people of Israel, love the foreigner, love the stranger as yourself. In comes the stranger, the foreigner, this Moabite young widow from one of the enemy nations. And she demonstrates by her commitment to take care of her mother-in-law the principle that Moses had set forth for the nation. He says, they said to her, she's better than seven sons. And we know the number seven is the number of Perfection in the scriptures, the number of completion. Uh, We know that from studying all throughout the scriptures. And the author who wrote this is meaning to draw a very stark contrast to grab the reader's attention. He's saying that Ruth is only one person. Not only that, but Ruth was a daughter where in this culture, the son was so valued because he could carry on the family line. 
She's only one person. She's a daughter. She's a foreigner. She's a stranger. She comes from a pagan nation. And yet she's better than all the perfection of seven sons. That should that should be as shocking to us as it was to those who originally read this story for the first time. Why was she better than the perfection of seven sons? By the way, those of you that have boys, you're thinking, would that be perfection to have seven boys? Um, I don't know about that. Uh, it just depends. If they could all be like Matthew Hurtado, I suppose that would be perfection, right? Okay, all right. It was her character, right? It was her excellence. It was the way that she loved. It was the way that she loved God in the way that she loved her mother-in-law. And you know, she never would have been able to love her mother-in-law the way she did if she had not first loved God. Our love for others is a reflection of our love for God. The Apostle John tells us this much in his letters, right? You can't say that you love God and not love your brother. It's impossible. We see here in Ruth that one person fully surrendered to God can have a great influence. Can I say that again? One person fully surrendered to God can have a great influence. You know, God doesn't need a thousand people. He doesn't really need any. But to accomplish anything on earth, he needs just one. One person fully, completely surrendered to him. Look at verse 17. It says the neighbor women. Well, then verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and she became his nurse. That is a grandmother's dream come true for many, many. She gets to raise up the grandchild. Verse 17, the neighbor women gave him a name saying a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed, meaning servant. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Why would the writer put that historical interpretive note there? The father of Jesse, the father of David. He wants the reader to take note that history is always his story. History is always his story. It doesn't matter if it's the history of a nation. It doesn't matter if it's the history of your own personal life. The history of your life is really about his story. This is just one small family who lived thousands of years ago. This isn't really ultimately about Boaz and Ruth or about their child Obed or even about David or Naomi. This is really about the Lord God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemptive plan to save people for himself. Here's another very important principle we pull out of what we're reading here right now, that seemingly small events can forever alter history. Seemingly small events can forever alter history. History by God's grace. It's never just about me. That's what the writer's trying to point out. That's why he says, 
You know, this is great news. Ruth and Boaz get married. Everybody's happy. They're calling down praises. Naomi's dancing around. She's doing the grandma boogie. She takes the child. They're all excited. And then you're reading. They name him Obed, which means servant, because he's going to serve his uh, grandmother and take care of her. And then it says, oh, by the way, he's the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let's not forget this isn't really about this child that's born. God's doing something else for a much larger group of people. That seemingly small events can have uh, forever altering historical impact. People from families, from nations are always woven together. Folks, our actions always impact other people. It's not if we have impact. It's how. It's either positive or it's negative. We are in our humanness. We're woven together. It's our fabric to be within community. We have families. We have churches. We have neighborhoods. We have nations. My actions have impact on other people. Your actions have impact on others. I'll say it again. It's not if it's just merely how. You will leave a story about yourself in this life. You will leave a story about yourself in this life. When you're long gone from this scene, you will still have left your footprint on where you have been. And most assuredly, quite possibly, it could show up in the spiritual heritage of your life lived for God in your descendants that come behind you. Don't ever think that your life is insignificant, that it's unimportant, that it's small. Because one life fully surrendered to God, those seemingly insignificant and small can have a tremendous influence and impact. Look at verses 18 through 22. They're showing proof. He says... He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. And now he says in verses 18 to 22, this is how we get from Obed to David. He's now going to narrow down the messianic family tree for the readers. The original readers knew that God was up to something in bringing the Messiah. And so the person that wrote the story of the book of Ruth is just now going to hit some highlights in the family tree. This is not an exhaustive list of everybody that lived between Obed and David. He hits some highlights. And whenever God does that in the genealogy, he's pulling out certain persons in order to reveal something about himself. Remember, we didn't read it out loud, but on the front of your outline is that quote or somewhere on the second page. That God gave us the scriptures to reveal himself, to tell us something. Even in the genealogical list, God is trying to tell us something about himself. So we just have to dig a little bit. If you look at your outlines there on the third page, where it says God can bring good out of bad for a nation, uh, particularly numbers one and two. Look how God works through undeserving people. These people on this list, almost all of them, we would call extremely undeserving to be in the family tree of Christ. But God does that on purpose. Number one, Perez, he says there in verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. To Hezron was born Ram. That's a cool name. 
Uh, anyone's going to be having a baby soon, keep that name in the back of your mind, Ram. That'd be good. Ram Irenio. That sounds awesome. I think it's too late for Ram Lansing. That sounds pretty cool, too. Wow. You guys, your quiver's full. That's enough for you guys. Okay. Aminadab. Verse 20. And to Aminadab was born Nashon, and Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse. And read it with me. To Jesse David. And who was David's son? Aha, you had to stop and think for a minute. You want to say Jesus, don't you? <laughs> who was David? Solomon. And then on down through the line, we get to, yeah, you guys were putting on the brakes. Gee, oh, well, no, wait. Uh, Solomon. Perez was the dominant clan in the tribe of Judah. But he was the child of probably the most notorious birth in the scripture. Because who were the parents of Perez? Tamar and her own father-in-law, who she tricked because she didn't have any kids and nobody was doing what Boaz did for Ruth and Naomi. So she took matters into her own hands and went in and conceived through her father-in-law. And here is Perez mentioned in scripture as part of the family tree of Jesus. And this was meant to be, on purpose, a shocking reminder of God's grace. And once again, the counterintuitive wisdom in accomplishing his purposes in the world. Hezron, he mentions next, was the great grandson of Jacob. Hezron went down to Egypt with Jacob and his family, and they lived under the leadership of Joseph. Then we see Ram, who's called Arni, which A-R-N-I, that's, uh, I don't know about that name. It comes up in Matthew, but... Arni or Arni in Matthew 1 3 is the same as this ram in Ruth. Then he mentions Aminadab. Aminadab, do you know who he was? He was the father in law of Aaron, the high priest, who was Moses' brother. Aminadab's daughter married Aaron, the high priest. Then you see Nashon, who uh, Nashon uh, was one of the leaders of Judah during and after the exodus out of Egypt. Then, very interesting, we get to Salmon. And who did Salmon marry but a woman named Rahab? And who was Rahab? Rahab was the Canaanite prostitute who accepted the one true God and was saved and ended up in the family tree of Boa, of uh, David and Jesus. In fact, Salmon marries the Canaanite prostitute Rahab and they give birth to a son named Boaz. The mother of Boaz in our story of Ruth was Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, who converted and came to saving knowledge in the one true God. But once again, what is God trying to say to us? He's hitting the highlights. And if you're in this family, you're thinking, Lord, those aren't the highlights we wanted to hit, you know, in our family tree. Usually we like to remove all the fruits and nuts and things before we put that tree out there, the cuckoos and the crazies and No, he puts it out there. That's one of the things that I think testifies to the authenticity of Scripture, because Scripture never tries to hide or cover the warts and the hairy moles and the other things, you know, that we have on our feet and our backs that we cover up when we come to church. Hey, every family has warts and hairy moles. But God, there's a sermon title right there, right? God works through warts and hairy moles. Uh, 
That's that's next week. You get to choose which you would rather be. Would you rather be a wart or a hairy mole? Okay. Anyway, I digress. But you get the point, right? Sometimes I'm I'm funny on purpose because I'm trying to use that humor to focus in our attention. That God really has no other choice than to use sinners, right? And it reminds us that trying to clean ourselves up before we come to him is futile. We could never clean ourselves up good enough to be acceptable to him. And he does that on purpose to show us that it is by grace, through grace, for grace. It's always Jesus. It's always God. It's never me. You know, the world, please forgive me, I digress again. The world keeps singing the praises of a man who was addicted to painkillers or prescription meds and he overdoses and they just sing his praises and they go on and on. And now they're singing the praises of a man who, yes, was had some of the greatest physical skills known in the history of man in boxing. Muhammad Ali, I'm not going to deny that. But then, you know, I read and I hear him say with his own voice that even in his Parkinson's, he has spent years signing autographs and going to these events. And his exact words were, I'm trying to do as many good deeds as I can because I want to make sure I get to heaven. Those were his exact words. Then his wife or his daughter, one of those, repeated that last night. And they said that as he passed, they were gathered around his bed singing and chanting Islamic praises. We can't do enough good deeds. And I'm not trying to malign the character of Muhammad Ali. That's not what I'm doing. Earthly speaking, worldly speaking, a great man. But spiritually speaking, lost. And it broke my heart to hear him say, I'm doing all these good deeds because I want to get to heaven. And we want to say, stop striving. Stop working so hard because it will never work that way. For it is by grace you have been saved. Grace is what? Undeserved favor. It is only when the sinner comes before the throne of God and says, I recognize that I cannot save myself. That I, more than that, that I am unworthy of heaven. I am unworthy because of my sinfulness. That is when God then stoops down and says, if you trust only in Christ, he will make you worthy. That's what the author is trying to do with this list of people. What's interesting, folks, as we end this on a positive note, verse 21, as we study the scriptures, is there anything, there is something extremely surprising in verse 21. But we don't really look to genealogies to be surprised. One of those names is a surprise to see in that list in verse 21. Any ideas? I'll give you the hint. It's not either of the first two names. That's the hint. I'm sorry, it is one of the first two names, my bad. It's not the first or the last name. The surprise isn't Salmon or Obed is mentioned. The surprise is that Boaz is mentioned. Why is that a surprise? Why did Boaz marry Ruth? Because under Leverite law, he was going to give descendants to the family of Naomi because they didn't have any. And so by law in the Hebrew culture, when they do their genealogies, they would have written it this way. Look at verse 21. And as Salmon was born, was born Boaz uh, and to 
Uh, Elimelech was born Obed or to Malon was born Obed. Legally, by law, that should be either the father or the grandfather the first time listed there, because that's what Boaz was doing. He was redeeming the name of Naomi's family. And so Elimelech or Malon usually in most Hebrew writings would have gotten the credit in that list. But look, once again, to shock the reader, to get the reader's attention, he's saying that God often rewards and honors those who honor him. He's saying, folks, look, Obed's name is here. It doesn't belong here. Legally, he doesn't have a right to be in this list. He is the kinsman redeemer to put Naomi's family name back on the map. But you know what? Because of his love for me, because of his sacrifice, because of his excellent behavior toward Ruth and Naomi, because of his willingness to obey not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law going above and beyond in his service for me, I'm going to honor him By putting his name forever in this list. God often honors those who honor him. Then comes Jesse. We don't know. He could have been the son of Obed. We don't think so. Maybe the grandson or the great grandson. Because the word son often carries the idea of descendant. Jesse was an old man in the days of King Saul. Then comes David, of course, the founder of the Davidic dynasty of kings, the greatest king Israel has ever known, except for Jesus. And now we come to an end to the end of our story. Our audience saw that God was clearly at work moving forward his plan, his program of redemption. Now, folks, let's go full circle and go all the way back to chapter one, verse one. No, we're not going to start over. Don't panic. We have David. At the very end, then comes Jesus. But look where we started, folks. Now, it came about in the days when who? The judges governed that there was a famine in the land. Now, folks, when we first started this series about 12 years ago, that's what it feels like. We talked about what life was like in Israel during the times of the judges. It said what? There was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes it was an immoral world it was a decadent world it was an evil world it was a dark world it was chaotic the 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 social structure was starting to break down it was not a good time for that nation and by the way folks can we relate to that we can relate to that but folks The writer says what? That even during one of the darkest times in Israel's history, God was still accomplishing his work, his plan, his purposes of redeeming a people for himself. And so now you see, if you go back over your outline sometime, one of the questions for you to answer is how does the end of the book of Ruth bring you hope? It should bring us hope because even though our nation, I believe, is on the Ethical, moral precipice of falling down into the abyss and all the chaos that comes with it. We can still have hope to know that God is still at work. He's still about the same business today in 2016 as he was in the times in the days of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And what is that business? Redeeming out a people for himself. We don't have to throw in the towel We don't have to get depressed. We don't have to get cynical. We don't have to be discouraged. Yeah, the world is a dark place, folks. It always has been a dark place. But that darkness 
is no obstacle to the light of the gospel in the glory of Jesus Christ. We should stay about our father's business. Jesus said, my father's always working. I, too, am working. John 5, 17. So we ask ourselves, are we as his children committed to still being at work? Let's not focus our eyes on the crumbling world around us. But as the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, what? Where are we supposed to fix our eyes? Upon Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was coming before him, despised all of his suffering and the shame. And then he was rewarded by being seated at the right hand of his father. So, folks, that's the hope that comes at the end of the story of Ruth. They were living in very dark times, but that was still no match for God to accomplish what he wanted to do. I think we're living either in dark times or getting darker. But, folks, we don't need to be discouraged because our God is greater than the darkness. And he's still busy about the work of bringing sinners to salvation. Let's stand together. Let's just close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you praise. We give you glory uh, for every good thing, for every, for any good thing. We praise you not just for the extraordinary, but we praise you for the ordinary. We praise you for the perplexing things that happen to us. And Father, many of us in your church today have become lazy. We become apathetic. Uh, We become lukewarm. Some of us have become discouraged. Uh, Even in despair or perhaps cynical, we get too caught up in the things of the world and we forget that you are always at work. And that just as the dark days of the time of the judges in Israel, you were still at work redeeming people for yourself. Even in these dark days and things that are going on in our country, you, you don't want us to be focused on that. You want us to be reminded that you are still at work. That you are still calling out a people to redeem for yourself and that you have asked us to be a part of that and that we are to live holy lives. We are to be your messengers. We are to share your truth. We are to work by your grace and your empowerment to see people coming into the kingdom of God. So, Father, my prayer today is that we leave very encouraged uh, that you are at work in the world, but also, Father, that you are at work in each individual life who has pledged their loyalty to you. Uh, That if we are born again, if we have accepted Jesus Christ as the one and only way to eternal life, that the scriptures are clear that you are at work in us and that you want to be at work through us. So, Father, our prayer is that you would work in our hearts, work in our lives, so that we might be people of excellence, excellence, that we might be clean vessels that you can use In very influential ways. And lastly, Father, I pray that each of us would remember that we will leave a mark on this world when we are gone. And I I personally believe that that mark begins in our homes and then it goes on out into our church, into our culture, into our world. But, Father, make us very mindful that we uh, remember that though we may think of ourselves as small and insignificant and really compared to you, we are but that we can have influence and impact by being people who are dedicated to following and pleasing you.
So, Father, we leave all results to you. We don't really care so much about results. We just care about faithfulness. Uh, We will be faithful and pray that you be effective. Father, thanks for bringing us together into this church family. We know that you determined from eternity past that each one of us be here today. And that shows intent, that shows purpose, that shows reason. Uh, And in that, Father, we rejoice. So we leave here rejoicing at the hope that we have uh, in Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer. And we just praise you and thank you for always being at work in the world and in our lives. And we want you to receive all the praise and the glory, Heavenly Father, as well as the Holy Spirit, as well as your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here today, folks.